0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Meredith Polsky, founder and director of Matan, and a a wonderful community activist. How are you, Meredith?
1: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. How are
0: you? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing wonderfully. And uh, for those listeners out there, um, Meredith is probably the first guest that I've come across who I, I learned about by being at a, an event and hearing her be honored at a, a particular uh, community event and saying, well, I have to meet this person. I ran over to her after the event and, and, uh, and introduced myself. So I'm very excited to, to speak with you. Meredith, tell us a little bit about where you're from and kind of what your upbringing was like.
1: Sure. I'm actually originally from Rothman County, New York, uh, Spring Valley, actually just outside of Muncie. Sure. Um, And I grew up in a pretty traditional conservative household, Um, went to synagogue every week, had Shabbat dinner every week. Uh, We weren't always, you know, the most observant, but we definitely spent Shabbat as a family. I was the granddaughter of a rabbi. I'm now also the sister of a rabbi. Oh, wow. (laughs) uh, So Jewish life was definitely very much a big part of our upbringing. I went to Camp Ramah. Which uh, one? uh, Camp Ramah in the Berkshires. Berkshires, okay. uh, At the New York camp. And um, I, you know, was uh, always at Hebrew school, went to Hebrew high school, at Prosdor at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in Manhattan. Um, and the truth is, I never, ever thought um, about being a Jewish educator, ever. Um, and so the, the path that I've sort of found myself on um, is really interesting. Not that I felt disconnected to my Jewish upbringing or anything like that. It just was never, um, you know, it was just never in the cards. It Not on never- the radar. Right. Yeah. So,
0: I'm curious, where was your grandfather a rabbi? In Rockland County?
1: No, mostly, uh, he retired to Rothland County. He was um, mostly in Irvington, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, and before that in Louisville, Kentucky. And Oh, wow. So, yeah.
0: Yep. you remember visiting him in Louisville or that was before your time?
1: Um, I believe that was before my time. I do remember Irvington.
0: Irvington. Very <laughs> cool. And now you said you have a sibling who's a rabbi as well?
1: I do. Uh, my brother, Rabbi David Englander, is a uh, rabbi at uh, B'nai Torah Congregation in Boca Raton.
0: Oh, and Bogue is a is a smart man. <laughs> yeah.
1: He doesn't understand why anybody would live anywhere but Florida.
0: So. Well, you know what? In summer, it's not that great, you know. So it's not. Uh, <laughs> but during the winter, I'll grant him that. Absolutely, I'm a big. My, I have two brothers that live both in South Florida, and I love jet skiing. So uh-huh. it's really the greatest excuse to go visit them. Um, and I'm sure,
1: you know, it's nice to have peace off by the pool when you can. Peace
0: by the pool. That's it. That's it. So you said you. You weren't necessarily thinking about you know, Jewish education or Jewish communal work. What was kind of your early uh, trajectory from a career standpoint? Where did you go to college and so forth?
1: So I went to the University of Michigan for, for undergrad. Um, go majored, blue, there you go. Go blue, yes. Um, I majored in psychology, and I knew that I wanted to do something with kids. I think I always pretty much knew that. Um, I thought I would do something in the realm of child psychology, and that was sort of the direction I was headed Uh, when I finished college. I, you know, took the study for the GREs and took the GREs and all of that kind of thing. And then as I was researching schools and PhD programs, what I sort of discovered was that, you know, the focus is much more on research than actually interacting with kids especially, uh,
0: especially in a PhD I would imagine
1: exactly and so then I was like well maybe that's not what I want to do uh, but then I really had no idea what I wanted to do <laughs> um, so I had uh, finished at Michigan I was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan because when you're from New York that's you know what you do after college I was living it's in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> I was perfectly really happy um, and I was working actually at that time uh, full-time for the camp ma and the Berkshire's office. Um, I think mostly because they had pity on me and I just really, <laughs> knew that, um, while were, I you, were
0: that. you like a lifelong camp person? Like I was. 12 I years? Worked, um,
1: yeah. I worked at camp until I got married. So wow. <laughs> at which point my husband said, you know, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was doing that while I was trying to figure out, um, right. You know, what was going to be my next step.
0: Wow. So you're, you're working in, in, uh, the Ramon office and how do you do this? Like, 22 23 kind of 22 yeah right and what ultimately coalesced for you or, or what kind of crystallized for you yeah. um, moving forward what did you how did you kind of move in a new direction
1: yeah so basically um, as part of my um, contract with Rama working full time during the year i had very early on sort of agreed that i would come back to be a division head for the second summer uh so I knew you know I might not know what I was going to do with my life but I knew what I was doing that summer so I I went back to camp and uh I always worked with the youngest kids which I loved they were about eight nine years old um going into fourth grade and so I was a division head for the second summer in a row with those kids and Basically, I mean, this is this is how my story goes. I, I got on the bus on the first day of camp, and I, you know, I was, like, very excited, starting a camp season, and I said, Hi, everyone. I'm Meredith. Welcome to camp. <laughs> um, and a little boy from the front row looked up at me and very earnestly said, Like I care. <laughs> oh and I knew he was one of mine because we had like special shirts for them because they were and we wanted to be able to find them and all of that and I sort of knew instinctively that um he was going to be my most challenging camper but that he was also going to be my favorite camper and I was right on both counts and um Josh it turned out I call him Josh had significant learning disabilities attention issues social challenges that made it really difficult for him to successfully interact um, with the other kids in his bunk. Uh, now I want to say cabin in New York. It was only bunk, but my kids go to camp here and it's cabins. So oh,
0: really? Okay.
1: <laughs> so I'll stay true to my New York roots for now. Oh, yeah. So um, He, you know, I think also really to his disadvantage was that he had come to camp and most of his bunk mates were kids that he was also at school with. So I think he, there were just a lot of preconceived notions about who Josh was and what he was capable of and what he wasn't capable of. And that coupled with his own challenges and coupled with, you know, 18 year old counselors who, you know, to no fault of their own, don't really know not
0: trained, not what to equipped
1: with a kid like this. You know, Josh and I ended up spending a lot of time together <laughs> and I loved it. I mean, he was definitely like my kind of kid. But it was really challenging, you know, for the bunk and for sort of like the whole system. And basically what happened was that um, after six days, the administration of camp decided that this really wasn't working, that Josh was really taking up way too much time from, you know, one particular staff member. And I was supposed to be overseeing all oh, the
0: campers, right.
1: all the counselors. And um, I definitely was spending, you know, a disproportionate amount of time with Josh and so after six days of camp, Josh was actually sent home. Right. Um, and again, I, I, you know, this is going back, you know, 20 plus years, I get older and older every time I tell this story, but, you know, I don't blame the camp either at that time. You know, it wasn't on everybody's radar screen and it wasn't um, something that we were necessarily equipped with or had the resources for. I will say very shortly after that summer, um, camp Vermont, the Berkshires, created a committee. I was on the founding um, committee for what became their Bray Rap program, which is specifically intended for kids like Josh, kids who can, who are physically able because the terrain of camp isn't super right. accessible, but we're able to be in a, in a bunk with other kids, but just need some extra support. So I'm really, you know, I'm really proud. I didn't have too much to do with that Bray Rap program after the beginning, but I'm really proud that Campers like Josh now certainly do have a place at Ramon. I think that's really important. I'm not looking to, you know, disparage anyone or anything. And they really did, you know, the right thing in terms of their growth and, you know, learning and things like that. But for Josh, you know, he was sent home on day six and I was really devastated by that. It was really, really hard on me. Josh and I wrote letters back and forth through the rest of that summer. He would actually write to me, you know, he was like eight years old. He would write to me on like big pieces of construction paper and marker. Right. I actually have them somewhere. I could probably, you know. How did
0: he deal with the rejection?
1: I mean, it's, I, you know, this is the part I don't remember quite as clearly, but I remember he was really sad. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the ins and outs of, who told him what, or, you know, I just remember he was sad. Um, and, and what I also don't remember, and it may be because I wasn't 100% involved in this aspect just as a unit head, but I don't know how his parents reacted mm. at the time. I mm-hmm. don't know, you know, sort of the um, intricacies of what that was like for them. I do know that he was, he was sad to leave, and I was, you know, I was really sad to have him leave. So we wrote letters back and forth, and then the summer ended, and the letters ended, and you know, as as it happens. So that October, so camp ended, of course, like at the end of August, and that October I called um, a friend of mine who I knew, who was a camp person, and I knew was a teacher at the Jewish day school that Josh attended, and I called him up, and I said, hey, you know, I just really wanted to see how Josh was doing, and he said, oh, I don't know, he got kicked out of school. Oh, he bet. And it was like, you know, I don't know before this if I believed in light bulb moments. Um, And I told you I never planned to go into Jewish education, but that was my light bulb moment. And I just felt like, you know, again, like I don't know how his parents responded. I didn't know them personally, but I just felt like here was this family that really tried to give their kid the best of what Jewish education could offer. You know, we always hear about Jewish summer camp and Jewish day school and all of these things. And I just felt like here was a family that was rejected at every turn. And I thought, okay, I guess this is what I'm gonna do with my life. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out how to how to fix this problem that I only thought was a problem because of this one kid, but then I started talking. So maybe not, you know, the best career choice, but I started talking to lots and lots of other people. Um And everybody had a story of their own Josh, you know, whether it was their own kid or some family they knew or a friend. And so I decided that this was really something that I wanted to sort of immerse myself in and try to do something about. So
0: amazing. I want to ask you because I want to hear exactly how you did that. uh, But I want to just sort of reflectively understand how did you know at that initial moment on the bus? this kid kind of throws down the gauntlet, you know, giving you like that challenge. And and you very interestingly said that you knew right away he would be challenging, but also that he would be your favorite. How did you know that?
1: I, you know what, to this day, like, it, that was, it's, he was just my kind of kid, you know, there's just something about kids who, you know, might come across as sort of like behaviorally challenged, but like, Even then, I guess, like now I know because I've studied it, but I I think even then, like I sort of had this sense that like, kids don't misbehave just to misbehave, like something else is going on, right? Like they're communicating something. Um, And for me, I always, I don't know, I always had a thing about like wanting to uncover that, you know, whether a kid was struggling um, emotionally because something was going on at home. Or, you know, behaviorally because of learning challenges or anything else. I mean, those were always the kids, you know, even as a camp counselor that like, they were like my kids, you know,
0: <laughs> like you think there was something like in your own background or personality or upbringing that, that sort of and made you more because I mean, lots of people encounter the same kids, but their reaction isn't, isn't the same as yours was. There's something about you kind of like, was just sort of open to that.
1: You know, now I feel like I'm in therapy. I don't know. <laughs> you know um, I
0: won't bill you, Mary. No. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I,
1: honestly, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. You know, so many people go into um, special education or, or, you know, especially Jewish inclusion because, you know, they were a parent of or they right. had a sibling. sibling or, yeah. I didn't have any of that. And obviously, you know, my idea to do this professionally came about long before I had my own kid. So I'm not really sure. Maybe I should, you know, dig deeper and <laughs> like at some point and maybe I'll have you that gotta
0: leave something for a second podcast. Yeah, I, guess so. um, I, like the, I like the tease. That's good.
1: <laughs> so, so I'm really not sure, but I know that I was always drawn to those kids, even if, you know, as a first year counselor, you know, the kid who like couldn't stop crying because she was so homesick, like, she's got three kids of her own now. Like she's the kid I'm still in touch with, kid. You know, she's
0: right. 30-something. <laughs> 30 <30-something. laughs> right.
1: Those are, I don't know, for whatever reason, those were the kids. Uh, I don't mean to group them as like those. No, I
0: understand, Right, but there's something you know, that spoke They to. were the
1: kids I was most drawn to. Maybe I felt like, you know, I could have like a bigger impact, maybe, you know, I don't know. I was very homesick as a child at camp, so I sort of get the homesick part. I'm not so sure about like the special needs and disabilities part. Right. Um, I think that was just sort of, I don't know, who I was or what Not I was.
0: Even, even if we can't always diagnose sort of our reactions or, or why something touches us in a certain way, I do think it's a very Jewish idea, actually, the notion of really listening deeply to our own inner voice and seeing what does touch us. Because at least I think from a Jewish perspective, perhaps that's you know the divine voice calling us towards something. Um, and. Maybe we don't need to know why exactly or, yeah. you know, the, the sort of the clinical reason, but the fact is that it's there and it demands something of us. And clearly you took that seriously.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's like the Jewish version of the delightful moment, you know, <laughs> um, some kind of divine force because there is very little other explanation for it. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, at 22 years old, I, I had this sort of, you know, what I call lightful moment. But also, I was naive enough, like, not to know <laughs> how incredibly challenging it was going to be to start a nonprofit organization, <laughs> sort, you know. Um, so I think it was sort of right place, right time, and, you know, a whole mix of a variety of factors that sort of, you know, came together to, to allow it to happen. And so, you know, I said earlier, I had already ditched the PhD idea. Right. So when I had this idea, and it was really more than an idea, it was really like, there was no question, this is what I was going to do. And did
0: you know right away, like, I want to start an organization that, like, what what was, kind of, like, what yeah. idea was it more like, I just want to help these kids
1: somehow? No, I, no. So that's such a good question. You yes, asked really good questions. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think there was ever a moment where I, I thought, Oh, I want to go teach Hebrew school for kids, you know, who learn differently. That probably would have been a much more reasonable response, <laughs> right. right? But I don't think that ever, wow, I don't <laughs> I don't think that was ever what I thought. I think it was like I am going to change this experience for Jewish families everywhere. I really think that's what went through my head. And it seemed at the time somehow perfectly reasonable. um, Why not? You know, to have (laughs) no job and no money and, you know, this this is what I was going to do. So I decided, I mean, I did like a very little bit of research, but I decided that um, sort of the skills and knowledge I needed would be in special education and in social work because I figured. The social work, you know, the special ed piece was sort of clear, like obviously, you know, if I want to understand kids, you know, with learning differences, um, special education made sense. And the social work piece, I think partly because I still had, you know, I I had thought about psychology for so long, but also I think with social work, you really learn about systems um, and, you know, community systems and family systems, organizational systems in a way that I I didn't think I was going to get from the special education side. Um so there was a I think there still is a program in New York. It's a dual degree program in special education and social work um at Bank Street College and Columbia University. Um so I just kinda of thought, okay, I think that's, you know, that's what I should do. Um and this was literally like I made the phone call in October. This was October. And so I applied to that one dual degree program. And I always say, luckily I got in. Like, <laughs> I, didn't have, I really didn't have a backup plan. And I felt like this real sense of urgency. And I actually started the program that January.
0: Oh my gosh. And
1: yeah. So like less than three months after that phone call, um, I was enrolled in graduate school. And so the way it worked, because I started in, gradu- in, in January, I had to sort of like do the year of social work work between like, I think January and August or something like that. So I did summer classes and I did all, you know, and I I know I was in like a huge rush. I like,
0: (laughs) you got to change the world, hurry up and graduate.
1: It's it's really what I felt like. Um, and so it's basically like a three year program and I might've done it in a little bit less time. I don't even remember now, but so I, I was getting these two master's degrees, and basically, you know, grad school is all about like different projects and diving into different ideas and things like that. So I really was able to spend sort of those three years researching and studying and interviewing and mapping out what would eventually become Matan. Um, And during those years, I was able to get some teaching experience, um, some more Hebrew school experience, you know, regular classroom experience, special ed teaching experience, and talk to just a lot of rabbis and communal professionals and bje people and you know all kinds of different folks to figure out like again like what i was going to create it was never that oh i'm going to go work in like the inclusion division of the bje i don't know why again it would have (laughs) made a lot more sense but that's that's where i was headed and um during that time i met a couple of other women who Sort of were on the same wavelength and had had similar experiences—one um, with her own kids and one with, you know, with other people's kids, like like myself—and so we just started to brainstorm and and map out and see if we could work together. By that time, I was teaching. I think it was around the same time I was already teaching full time at a Jewish day school um, in Manhattan. So I was done with school, um, but I was still really, you know, working on this idea. And as it turned out, it was exactly when, so it was around the year 2000, and it was exactly when the Jewish community was really starting to think about sort of like this social entrepreneur piece, right? right. It, was, it was the beginning of what was called Be at what was Jesna and UJC. None of these things exist anymore. Um, it was the beginning of Joshua Venture. It was, you know, it was really, the very start of the Jewish community thinking about, okay, there are these young people out there who are thinking about Jewish life in different ways. Um, what do we do about that? How do we cultivate that? How do we, you know, support sort of this next generation?
0: I think it very um, much paralleled the dot-com movement.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. That sort yeah. of startup
0: mm-hmm. mentality that began emerging.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it was, you know, I really, I think about Martin Kaminer, who, you know, had this vision um, for B Kareem and um, I had literally never written a grant proposal before, never probably even saw a grant proposal <laughs> before, but somebody told me about this Be Green project, and they were they were accepting applicants for their first cohort of incubator organizations, and so we applied for it, and we interviewed, and we wrote this grant, and um, it's crazy looking back, but we were accepted, and it was really like know, it was really the start of Matan because we had, um, they gave us like a small, like a cubicle, like at Jesna, so it felt like we were something real, you know, Um, and it didn't provide money, but it provided a lot of supports, um, you know, in terms of training, in terms of the physical location, in terms of helping us learn, you know, how to officially start a not-for-profit, all these things that clearly had never occurred to me that... (laughs) I would need to know, um, you know, how to write a budget, how to, you know, all of these things. And just soon after we got into B. Kareem, Joshua Venture announced um, a call for proposals for its first cohort. And basically what happened was they had a target age group in mind. So you had, I don't remember what it was, but you had to be between this age and that age. And of myself and my co-founders, I was the only one who fit into that window, so we were like, okay, I guess you're going to <laughs> you <base. laughs> apply for this. Um, and it was it was based out of San Francisco. And they flew me out of San Francisco for an interview. It, was, and it all seemed really crazy at the time. And I was still teaching full-time. And then after my work day, I would go to the Jasnah offices, and I would sit at, like, my Baton office and figure out, you know – what I was going to do. So I got into Joshua Venture. And so that really allowed me, because that did come with a bit of money. So it allowed me to sort of, you know, quit my day job, if you will. The following year, I wasn't teaching full time. And I really was just working on Matan. So the way that things emerged, my colleagues still had other jobs. And so I became sort of like the default in charge person, you know, And so, and then it just sort of evolved from there. And ultimately, actually, they both left the organization. And um, we, before, so the first one left pretty early on. And then the second one, as she was getting ready to leave, we wrote a grant so that ultimately I'd be able to hire an executive director. And, um, and, And that's what we did. And so, you know, it was sort of a crazy confluence of events that worked out really well. But, again, if I knew what I didn't know, <laughs> um, you know, I'm not sure I could have taken all the leaps.
0: That's why they often tell people to get married young. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> That's absolutely true. You know,
0: it just, um, when, when you were first starting this, you know, when you first had this initial, call it light bulb moment, epiphany, yeah. uh, crystallization, did you do some initial research within the broader Jewish community just to see, like, does anything like what I want to do exist in any way? Um, And then did you do, I imagine you must have done more research in that regard, like once you were really getting into it within grad school. What did you or maybe didn't you find out there? And what did you really feel you needed to come and, you know, what void did you feel you needed to come and fill through Matan?
1: Such a great question. So when when I was first envisioning Matan, I really envisioned it as a New York-based direct service organization. So my sort of vision at the time, um, and this is what I ultimately did for the first bunch of years, was really to go like from synagogue to synagogue and school to school and, you know, have families call and say, hey, we need X, Y, and Z help. Um, So I was really focused on researching in the New York area. And basically what I found at the time, and again, this is going back a whole bunch of years, but basically what I found at the time was the BJE, you know, the Bureau of Jewish Education Education, in in New York. And they did have uh, Rabbi Marty Schloss at the time was doing all of their special needs work and doing incredible things, but really focused on the Orthodox day school world So I felt like, okay, so I'm not going to do that. That won't be my focus. But I feel like, you know, the vast majority of kids, I think now it's like 80% of kids um, who receive a Jewish education, receive that Jewish education through supplemental Hebrew school programs. So like, you know, afternoon Hebrew school, Sunday Hebrew school. So I felt like, well, that's where I want to focus because, you know, for a variety of different reasons. Um, But it seemed, you know, first of all, the day school piece was, at least in New York, at least in the Orthodox day schools, the BJE did have a reach for that. So I really thought that we were going to do direct service for congregational Hebrew schools. And we did that for a long time. I mean, that's, you know, the only way I got paid for, you know, a whole bunch of years. And, and it was interesting, because, you know, now you hear Jewish inclusion, and like, You've probably heard about it, you know, whether it's on your Facebook feed or somebody sends an article, but at the time, nobody was talking about Jewish inclusion. It just wasn't a thing. So I was literally knocking on doors of synagogues, um, telling them that this was like a huge problem, right, like a huge issue that they needed to, to fix, and that, oh, by the way, you need to hire me to help you fix the problem, and it was... You know, again, I don't know what made me think that <laughs> I could do that, but um, but that's what I did. Um, I went from synagogue to synagogue. I really helped them evaluate their programs and what was going on because, you know, I would go to some schools and they'd say, well, 65% of our kids get pulled out for Hebrew support. And I was thinking, well, something's not going right in the classroom, you know, if the majority of your kids are being pulled out. So we would look at the program. We would think about different models and how to address the different learning needs. You would end um, up helping
0: them kind of re- reconfigure their actual mainstream education as well.
1: Exactly, Exactly. And to this day, I really feel like inclusion is not just about the kids with special needs or disabilities. Like inclusion is really about everybody because when you make a program or a lesson accessible, to every kind of learner, it benefits every single learner. You know, um, the things we did in programs were to make them more mi- multimodal, more multisensory, more engaging, more active. And four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, whether a kid has attention issues or not.
0: Anyone will have attention issues then.
1: You know, that's going to be a challenging time or a Sunday morning after, you know, sleepovers and late night movies and things like that. Um, it's just a tough you know, I give a lot of credit to, to Hebrew school educators. They're up against a lot. And so, so, yeah, we would go into these programs. And, you know, of course, there were times where we would look at, you know, individual kids and, you know, help sort of bridge that gap of what was going on with them and how they might be able to talk to the families and stuff like that. Um, and we would also do professional development sessions on how to teach Hebrew to different kinds of learners or, or things like that. So um, you
0: weren't personally engaging these students because that's just too much for you yeah, to kind of train like the teachers.
1: Yeah. It wasn't like I ever went in and like worked one-on-one with a student, but I sort of watched to see what I thought was going on with that student, either because there was a behavior issue or because they've been in Hebrew school for five years and didn't know the Hebrew alphabet, you know, yeah. like different things. And sometimes it came from parents, you know, sometimes parents would bring us in to a Hebrew school or even to a day school and said, you know, C- can you help the teachers figure out what's going on? And even back then, and it remains true till now, although it's, it's becoming less of an issue now, but the big complaint um, oftentimes among Hebrew school educators is that parents don't tell them what's going on with their kids. Kid. You know, they don't tell them if they have special accommodations in public school, they just drop them off at Hebrew school and think it's all going to be okay. Um, But the truth is, you know, one of the big lessons I learned over the past 20 years at Matan is that I think oftentimes parents don't share because they really don't know what you're going to say in response. And I think parents of kids with special needs and disabilities are told no so often, and things are such a battle that they don't want their, you know, religious, spiritual home to be one more place where they're told no. So I think that the more that congregations and and synagogue schools and any Jewish education learning program, the more they're able to articulate and communicate that they're inclusive, that they aim to be inclusive, that this is what they have in place, the more feedback they get from parents, you know, because then it's like, oh, you're not just asking me this so that like you can tell me that my kid is a problem, you're actually asking me this so that my kid can be successful. And that's probably you know the biggest thing I've learned in all these years. The congregations and the schools and the camps and whomever else that are really willing to figure out where they stand when it comes to inclusion and really set inclusion goals Figure out where they are and where they want to be, and effectively communicate that. The more partnership they get from parents, and the more information they get about children,
0: kind of like a, a cycle where yeah you know, somebody's got to yeah. somebody's got to take that risk first and say we're in, and then everyone's you know kind of jumps yeah. on board.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. Um, and then you know just to to sort of round out the story because you asked me about the yeah. beginning, something else that I know I haven't answered yet, but basically so. After we were able to hire an executive director, and we went through a couple, and in 2010, so at about the 10-year mark, um, we had an executive director, actually Dory from Incursioner, who is still our executive director. So we went through, at that point, a strategic evaluation. We hired a team, and we worked very closely with them and our board. And what we discovered with sort of like this New York direct service focus was that we were having a really tremendous impact on a really small number of people. Right. Right. So if the vision was really to change the landscape of Jewish education and how Jewish education is able to include children with special needs and disabilities, then we really needed to shift our model. And it was at that point, I would say, that we started doing more research, you know, sort of nationwide of what else was out there. In ter- And at that time, it was a lot about BJEs and their, um, you know, inclusion specialists and things like that. Um, But we were sort of like this independent entity, and we needed to figure out what to do with that. And we also needed to figure out how we fit into that landscape of sort of like the sort of much more organized Jewish world. And the interesting thing is, we didn't quite fit into that model, but those have disappeared And and we're still at it. So um, that part has been, you know, just sort of fascinating, you know, in terms of what we were able to sustain in the midst of, you know, really challenging landscapes, both for, you know, inclusion directors of BJEs and also BJEs themselves. And so so what emerged was that we decided that we were going to really shift and become a real training organization. So we really put aside the direct service, um, you know, me knocking on doors, and decided that this was, gonna be, this was gonna be our thing. We were gonna train the people on the front lines of Jewish education so that wherever they were, they could successfully include kids with special needs and disabilities. So, so you
0: wanted to train them before they reached the field or once they were already out there in different places?
1: Great question, so, so at, at that point it was really, um, well, we had ideas about both. So at the time, we did start doing some trainings um, at some of the graduate schools, like at JTS and HUC, um, and we still do some of that. And we're involved with them in talks because we've always advocated that there should be, you know, an inclusion track in all of these places. Because basically, what happens is these Jewish educators come out of these schools as Jewish educators, never having had any exposure to inclusion or special needs, and That's just not realistic anymore. You know, no matter what classroom you walk into, there are going to be children with learning challenges. Um, So that kind of reminds
0: me as an analogy of like a medical doctor never learning anything about alternative medicine or Eastern medicine, you know, where there's like people are interested in in holistic approaches. Yeah, you need to know something about it, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, so we've really been advocating that for many years, and I think um, you know JTS and HC as examples are really getting much closer to that. Um, but over the years, they've brought us in to do sessions and things like that. I've also taught um, online for Gratz College that so there's some inclusion stuff, but we decided for like our sort of flagship training program. Um, that we would create what we call the Matan Institute. And we launched it in 2012. So it was just about two years after the strategic evaluation. And it was another consultant because we were thinking, well, we're not ready. We don't know. We've never done it. And this a consultant said to us, if you do it, then you'll have done it. You right. know, we're like just do it. Like the people will come, you know, if you build it, they will come. And that's really exactly what happened. So we, um, we designed this um, Matan Institute that has evolved, but it started out as, I think five days of training, four or five days of training throughout. No, it was it was four days of training. So it was two days at the beginning of the year and two days at the end of the year. And it was geared specifically towards congregational school education directors. Okay. Um, and we only marketed it at that point to people in the New York metropolitan area, sort of as a pilot. And we got applications from all over the country, wow. all over California, Texas, Florida, Michigan, everywhere. How did people so- hear about it? Um, well, I guess the power of social media, you know, <laughs> which didn't exist, um, you know, uh, much before this, but yeah, um, it was really, you know, word of mouth, social media, but it really showed us, you know, we've, we've stumbled upon something here that, that people are really searching for. So that first cohort of the Matan Institute, we had 17 education directors um, from all across the country. and we hired mentors so that every participant would also work with a one-to-one Matan mentor who would help them establish and then work towards uh, short-term and long-term goals towards inclusion in their institutions. And we also had webinars between our in-person dates. And um, it was a really phenomenal experience when we just felt like we were creating such ripple effects for the Jewish community, you know, all across the country. And so from there, we, we expanded the program. So now we do um, six in-person days. So it's two at the beginning, two in the middle, and uh-huh. two at the end because we felt like we didn't have enough contact with them. And our curriculum has just, you know, skyrocketed. And what we found, so now we're on, we're in the middle of our ninth cohort of congregational school education and youth directors. We've added uh-huh. youth directors. And now, I mean, our curriculum, you know, we do a whole thing about, change theory and visioning, and, you know, we bring in an expert, her name is Nancy Parks, um, to do that with our cohort, and we have our internal Matan speakers like myself and my colleagues, but we also bring in really, like, you know, heavy hitter um, experts from the, yeah. from the
0: secular community, yeah,
1: secular world, yeah, you know, to really teach about ADHD and anxiety and executive functioning, you know, and really giving people, you know, a pretty deep knowledge um of you know what all these things are but also then how do you differentiate instruction for all of these different learners in your programs so we do that over the course of a year and the mentor component is still really important
0: and the mentorship allows them let's say if they have a specific case of a student they can kind of bounce ideas off this person during the year and strategize with them
1: yeah so it's a really good question so we still we try to focus on sort of the, the macro pieces of the school rather than the micro. So, okay. like, so when the mentors do a site visit, for example, which they'll do no matter where in the country the participants are, they're not going to go and sort of observe a fourth grade student because okay. next year that student might not be in the school and then we haven't solved anything, right? But we can look at, okay, this is what seems to be happening in this school when kids reach fourth grade, What's going on, you know, in the years leading up to that? Or we seem to have, you know, a really disproportionate number of students struggling with X. You know, what's happening with that? Or our teachers, you know, seem to need support in differentiating instruction, whatever it is. And so those are the kinds of things the mentors will work with them on. And also just like creating systemic change, right? So like it might be that a mentor is going to help them, rewrite their registration materials so that they're asking better questions and getting Mm. more information. It might mean that they're helping them create an inclusion committee or crafting an inclusion vision statement. You know, things that are really going to create long-term systemic change in these organizations. And so out of sort of the success of these institutes, we also... um, Expanded to create a Matan Institute for Early Childhood Educators, which we're currently in our fourth cohort of. And we've also brought the Institute out to communities. So, for example, if there's like a critical mass, let's say in Washington, D.C., which we've done, we brought the Institute to Washington, D.C. So that we had 18 congregations and actually one day school participate in a regional institute. And it was the same model, it was a year, and we brought in all our speakers and all of that. And we've done it in Metro West and we've done it in some other places, Metro West New Jersey. But basically, you know, just being able to see what happens when that many people from one geographic area are immersed in this learning, it, the whole community changes in terms of its ability to include and, you know, just sort of the message that the community is sending. So in those cases, we partner with federations in order, in order to bring those. We're doing, four-part series um, out in Los Angeles this year. And we've done, you know, we go all over for professional development. So we love the Institute idea because it's it's not just a one-off, but we do the one-offs too. We do
0: the one-offs also. How, how do you deal with the fact that, I mean, obviously you're training these careerists, so to speak, these heads of institutions, but brass tacks, I mean, most of the people actually delivering the education are going to be, I mean, I, I work with college students right, on, on campus. Um, so many of those kids, you know, are, are Hebrew school teachers or, you yeah. know, and these are young people that there's a lot of turnover. They're not necessarily education people. So how do you deliver the information or the skills to those people who are actually in front of the kids in the classroom, even if the education director is getting this amazing wealth of knowledge
1: yeah so it's a great question um a lot of what we do as part of the institute is to help them understand how to teach it back to their teachers because basically i mean we're always happy to you know go do a professional development it's partly you know how we bring in um, sure. our funds but um but ultimately we want them to not to have to hire outside consultants to do it so When they participate in an institute, so they get a full binder of every presentation that's being done at the institute. They also get it on Thumb Drive or Google Drive. um, So they have it all electronically. And we really workshop with them, you know, how they can take this and bring it back to their teachers. Um, You know, I think unlike other places, we're not looking to be proprietary. We're really looking for them to take it and share it back. And so, you know, one of the things a mentor might do is to help them create a professional development for their staff, you know, and some of them feel more at ease with that than others. Some of them are still going to ask us to come do it, you know, and of course we'll, we'll do that. But um, the real intention is to empower them with the knowledge and with the skills to be able to do it. You know, recognizing that we're not, you know, we're not giving them a master's in special education right. or anything like that, but really giving them Sort of the tools that they need to work with their teachers. And then, you know, when we go into different communities, we do train a lot of classroom for, teachers. Frontline
0: teachers. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious how did the, um, when you switched models, so to speak, how did the people that were, or the, the institutions that were receiving services previously, how did they react? Was there, was that a difficult switch for, for people to kind of wrap their heads around?
1: Um, somewhat, but we, we really created an exit strategy. So it was over a period of like three years. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, we didn't take on new clients in that same capacity, but we didn't just drop them. You know, we, um, we created like a three-year exit plan. And part of that exit plan included, you know, having the directors participate in an Right. Because what we were finding also was that, people were sort of outsourcing inclusion, which also, you know, is sort of
0: <laughs> ironic. Yeah. Like,
1: we didn't, like, we we really no longer wanted people to feel like, oh, well, we're doing inclusion because we brought Matan in. You know, like, well, Matan was doing inclusion, and it was great that the organization was willing to bring us in, but we really wanted the organization to be able to, you know, do inclusion. Right. So. Right yeah
0: now did you have to transition to becoming more of a fundraiser or is that really the executive director who deals with that like what's your role at this point in the organization's life cycle
1: so the fundraising is basically the reason i didn't ever want to be the executive <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so you know business school was not you know on my on my list ever um well maybe at some point but no time recently but um so yeah, our executive director is, is really the fundraising point person, but she and I are definitely writing partners. So I do a lot of grant writing at this point, like a right. lot of grant writing <laughs> and you know, grant reporting and things like that, but also, you know, creating the curricula for these institutes keeps me pretty busy because every cohort is a little bit different, you know, and and we never want to feel like it's sort of like this plug and play program. You know, when people apply to the Institute, we ask a bunch of questions about like their greatest challenges and what they have in place already and things like that. And so we really want to make sure that we're answering to those. And actually one of the things we do is on big sort of um, poster boards, at the beginning of an institute, we print out what they listed as their challenges and what they listed as what they hope to learn. And it's so that they can see each other's, but also really to hold ourselves accountable, you know, that this this is what we're here for and this is what we're going to address. And, you know, I guess probably as with any program, like the longer you do it, the more you want to add to it and the more you want to change it and the more you want to make it better. So I do a lot of that. And like right now we're working on, One of the things are past participants because now we have about almost 200 alumni participants, and um, and we continue to evaluate. We do sort of like longitudinal evaluations, and one of the things we're asked a lot is sort of like, "What's next? Can you do a follow up? Can you do you know?" So right now, we're crafting an Institute 2.0 that will be specifically for people who have already participated but want to go deeper into um, a particular topic. So they can sign up for one day, two days, three days, um, but each day will focus on a a particular topic that they've sort of ranked as being the most relevant to their work at this point. And so things like that, you know, and, and also my job is talking to communities. So anybody who sends an inquiry to Matan, you know, I'm the one who reaches out and like somebody from, Tucson Federation reached out and, oh, you know, we're interested in bringing them with Tom, but what would that mean and what do you do and what this is what our community thinks it needs and and really like building those relationships and helping communities figure out what would be the best use of their time and money, you know, if we were to come out. And I do a lot, you know, I do a fair amount of traveling because often, like <laughs> often I will be the one that goes out to, you know, to present or, um, right. you know, things like that. So, um, Yeah, but we have a great team. I mean, Dory is amazing, and we have um, Michelle Steinhardt is our mentor coordinator. So she took that off my plate, which has been amazing. So she oversees all the mentors for the ed director and youth director cohort so that there's, you know, a real layer of oversight. And we created a mentor curriculum so that the mentors check in each month with their people, and there's, like, things that they can study further and, you know, articles they can read and questions they can be asking And so, yeah, we have a great
0: team. It's incredible. It sounds like it, a a great team that's headed by a great and passionate leader. Your love and care for this topic is uh, really abundantly evident, and uh, it's inspiring. Anything else that people should know about Matan? And also, where can people learn about it online?
1: Sure. So, Matan's website is matankids.org. So, it's just Matan, M-A-T-A-N, kids, K-I-D-S. Dot org um, and there people can find out about our institutes, about the various trainings that we do. but really everything we do is, is, is pretty customized to the needs of a community. Um, sometimes we'll work with federations to do sort of a community assessment to figure out where their community is at in terms of inclusion and what would be the best next steps forward. We also have a new relatively new MadLe training curriculum. Um, so that congregations can purchase a curriculum to train their teenage assistants, because teen assistants are a huge. I mean, they're like this huge commodity for religious schools um, and even some youth programs, but. They're not often trained sure. people to, to really make the biggest impact that they can. So um, my colleague, Rabbi Ruti Riggin, and I, who is our disability rabbinic scholar in residence, she and I created a, um, a team curriculum so that organizations don't need to have us come out and do it. They can really implement it on their own, and it has through all the PowerPoints and video links and handouts and right. cuts, you know, everything that they need to train their module theme. So um, there's some information about that on there. We do a monthly webinar series that's free and public that, you know, anybody's welcome to join, sign up for our mailing list.
0: Wow. Incredible. Um, so much, so much there. And really Matan means gift and, and it, uh, or giving. And, and it's, this is really sounds like an organization that has been a gift not only to all of these children and their families, but, to the community at large. So thank you for creating and perpetuating that gift. Meredith Polsky, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.